0: Hi there it's kale i have to quickly remind you that this episode deals with spoilers for the watchman comic book the tv show and the movie you've been warned enjoy the show
1: hello and welcome to matt and kale read comics every episode kale and i are going to read a different graphic novel and discuss it look at the choices the cartoonists make in the creation of the graphic novel and talk about what that impact has on us as readers my name is Matt Smith. I'm a Canadian cartoonist and comics educator currently living in Glasgow, Scotland.
0: Hi, and I'm Kale Werrike. I'm a longtime mainstream, quote unquote, comic book fan, cosplayer, collector and former filmmaker. Teach me about comics, Matt.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I guess we'll we'll start by acknowledging that that Kale's tastes are very mainstream. You know, you read comics purely from an entertainment standpoint. Is, is that is that fair in saying that, Kale?
0: Yes, definitely.
1: I, I, I like
0: pretty pictures. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I enjoy mainstream comics. I love a good superhero comic, but I also really like looking at the craft of comics and the medium of comics and really examining what can be done storytelling-wise and just the, the things that can be only done and only achieved through comics. So we wanted to start this podcast to kind of take a deeper dive into some comics and hopefully look at some new comics. But for our first episode, we chose Watchmen, which is one of my favorite graphic novels of all time. Kale, what's your relation to this book?
0: Well, I mean, I've always been a fan of superheroes. And so for me to uh, kind of read a book that deconstructs the superhero myth, Mm -hmm. uh, that's pretty interesting. And I, I mean, recently I've been even watching The Boys on Amazon, and that is like a modern uh, deconstruction of superheroes as well. So it's really interesting to kind of take a look at basically takes on uh, similar types of characters, uh, and we can get into that in a bit. But, uh, you know, when you think of like classic superheroes like Superman and Batman, how would that actually relate to, you know, real life or... um, yeah? anything else so yeah let's we can talk about
1: that i guess as the episode goes along yeah i mean the word deconstruction is great because that's really what so just to get everyone on board if you haven't read Watchmen, obviously highly recommend it and it's one of the books that i usually give to people that aren't maybe so familiar with comics i've given it to a lot of kind of first time comics readers and it's i think very accessible to people that are comic fans or maybe this is their first introduction to the world of comics and the world of superheroes but The story is about uh, this group of characters and it asks the question, what if superheroes were real? And it takes place in an alternate 1985 where superheroes have existed since the 1930s and they've kind of impacted and affected uh, history. And then there was a large group in the 1970s that were eventually banned by the government. And now the story is in 1985 and there's sort of former and outlawed superheroes. We follow characters that include Night Owl, the Silk Spectre, Ozymandias, Dr. Manhattan, is the only character in this story who actually has any real superpowers. Everyone else is just kind of a masked vigilante, kind of like Batman. And there's also Rorschach, who's investigating the death of the comedian, and that's what opens the story. And uh, during the course of Rorschach's investigation, there's this larger sort of conspiracy against the superheroes past and present that comes to light. And I mean, It's really hard to describe just what Watchmen is because there's just so much packed into these, these issues. It was originally printed and published as 12 issues and then collected into this graphic novel. And even that summary there just only kind of hints at this larger world, which is one of the things that's just so great about it is there's just so much going on, so much content, so much story. And it's, it's just, you can spend so long just looking at a page because there's just so much in every panel so it's written by alan moore and the art by dave gibbons and they worked very very closely there's lots of collaboration i have this book kale i think you need to check out it's called watching the Watchmen. i have it in front of me and it's got just so many notes and sketches and the thumbnails for the entire series but it just really shows how much back and forth there was but they really wanted to build this world and so looking at any page within any panel there's just there's so much background detail that kind of hinted at what an impact these superheroes have had on the course of human history. So this 1985 is so far removed from our own 1985, because we've had these mass adventurers, these, you know, these superheroes existing since the 30s, but also Dr. Manhattan existing and changing technology and changing the progress of human achievement. And I want to talk about the uh, the layout. Did you notice that the entire book kale is drawn on a grid?
0: I actually didn't think about it till you yeah. mentioned it. And I was like, I am looking at the comic right now. And I'm yeah. like, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> it, it is like a perfect grid, every panel. And it's, what do you think is the um, kind of important part uh, or, or the, uh, the meaning behind the grid pattern?
1: Yeah, so just to explain people that maybe don't have the book in front of them, the entire story was drawn on this nine panel grid. So if you look at any page, there's not necessarily nine equal panels, but even if a page has kind of a longer horizontal panel, it really is three of those little panels broke or added up together. So, you know, it's three by three, three rows of, you know, three columns and three rows of nine panels per grid, or they're combined to make, you know, longer horizontal ones, kind of a widescreen. But if you look at it, really, the entire story is drawn on this grid. And I mean, the reason they did that is number one, they wanted to kind of create this sort of steady rhythm, this steady tempo as you're reading, you know, and then when they do break from that nine panel grid, maybe they have like a larger panel that is more surprising. It does kind of tell you, okay, this is something that's important. There's a reason we're breaking this tempo. But I mean, just looking Dave Gibbons also has another fantastic book called How Comics Work. And I'm just looking at what he said here. And they really wanted to break away from sort of, he calls it poster layouts that were popular in the U S comics. So, I mean, one of the things Kale and I talk about is his, you know, strong loyalty towards very image based, splashy uh, American kind of style comics where every layout is kind of like bombastic and crazy, you know, and just like, you know, this panel explodes into this panel and that can detract from the, from the, the reading order and the, uh, the rhythm of reading. And they really wanted this to stand out and be something different and not be this sort of in your face, very bombastic. And so they wanted this sort of basic grid, but also I know how much detail they wanted to put into every page. And if they were spending time, not only adding that detail and developing the characters, but also redesigning the page every time, like it would just would have killed Dave Gibbons. So knowing that they had this, you know, this basic grid work to work with. That saved him a lot of time when it came to designing each new page. So there's a lot of reasons for it, but it definitely is one of those things. Once you see it, you can't help but see it. And for me, I know when I pick up a book, I do kind of look, okay, what's the underlying structure? And if I ever see a nine panel grid, I get excited and I'm like, oh, it's Watchmen. It's the Watchmen grid. And it's kind of, you know, like recognizing an old friend. It's, you know, it's very geeky, but I get very excited over that.
0: How do they actually... You know, for, for me, I, I was looking at the, the lettering itself yeah. and, and how do they, you know, fit everything in those little cells. I, it's something, <laughs> I, I don't know, like I'm so used to like good, you know, splash pages with, mm-hmm. you know, lots of room where people can actually uh, write like tons of dialogue or even yeah. sometimes dialogue that flows from panel to panel. But here it's so contained and I'm like, it, it. How do they do that, right? Like when you're a writer, <laughs> how do you think in like smaller uh,
1: panels or smaller uh, yeah. pieces of text? Well, I know just from this watching the Watchmen book that Alan Moore does do little, very, very ugly, rough thumbnails as he's kind of plotting out. And he's also got a book called uh, Writing Comics with Alan Moore or Alan Moore's Writing Comics. It's something like that. And he talks about like his quote unquote rules and he broke down how many he's like people are asking me for the rules so uh 23 words per panel there's something like he pulls numbers out of nowhere and just says like this is probably the maximum per panel and maximum per page maximum per balloon so he does have kind of what he knows will be too much per page or per panel even but to answer your question part of the reason or part of the you know to make it fit When you draw comics, you draw it at about one and a half times the size. So, you know, even when we buy these comics that are, you know, more or less a skinnier A4 sort of page size, they're drawn on like tabloid A3 size. So you do draw much bigger, which allows you to get a bit more detail in. And then it kind of tightens everything up when you downsize it for the print size, but also it's not so common anymore, but Dave Gibbons did all the lettering himself. so. If you look at oh, the, the rough mm-hmm. pages, the pencil pages, he mm-hmm. goes in and he puts in the words and then he puts in the balloons and then he was how much space is left for the art. And this is one thing that like, I, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, I'm a comics educator as well. And this is like the number one thing that I drive home with my lessons is add the words first in every panel, take the time to think about what's being said. If there's any narration for caption boxes or any thoughts and thought balloons or sorry, thought bubbles, speech balloons. Write that all out first, then you know how much space you have left for the art. And the fact that Dave Gibbons did his own lettering, he knew exactly how much space he had left for every one of these panels. So that's how it just, you know, it's so symbiotic and it works so well. You're right. They get a lot of words in, a lot of details, but it all works together because he was placing it all on the page and, and inside each of those panels.
0: So for whatever reason, in my mind, I was thinking that the art came first and then the lettering. And that was the order, Um, especially like, you know, uh, in mainstream comics, I thought Mm -hmm. that like the art would come first and then it would be sent to the letterer who would put it together. Um, This is so interesting that Dave Gibbons did it himself. Yeah. I mean, I used to draw comics as well. I used to have a web comic for, you know, about seven years and I did it that way, like the old way or the, maybe the Marvel method. I'm not sure whatever it's called, (laughs) but in my mind, I was like, oh yeah, I'll just draw it first. Uh, Yeah. And then I'll put in the lettering later and kind of make it work somehow. Uh, and yeah, then, yeah, that's how I, well, made I know. It
1: I know from your comics your plot pulse webcomic that you used to have, you left quite a bit of space above the character's heads in the background. So you did kind of hedge your bets with space for those balloons. That's correct. But to go back to like the process, I mean, really, there are no there's no right way to make a comic. You know, any style that works for you kind of does work. And when you're working with, you know, multiple people doing the writing, penciling, the inking, the lettering, the coloring, it is more of an assembly line and the artist wouldn't necessarily do the lettering, but they do need to know how much space to leave. So they, you know, will rough it out and then someone else will come in and do the lettering. But as far as the art coming first, the writing coming first, obviously this was scripted by Alan Moore first, but then Dave Gibbons would go and do what are called thumbnails. So these very, very small rough drawings where he figures out what the art is. And the book, Watching the Watchmen, one of my favorite parts is he's got j- literally every thumbnail for the entire book. You can see it as this very, very rough, I wouldn't even call them stick figures, it's kind of blobby figures, a bit of facial detail. but Just these, these very, very rough characters on the very you know wonderful nine panel grid where he doesn't write out the letters, but he's got these kind of balloons with kind of lines. So he knows, okay, this character is saying about this much. I'll just rough it in. And then when he goes to the actual pencils, he'll go back to doing the, the lettering first, kind of at least roughly to know how much space to leave. So it, it is kind of, you know, chicken and the egg, words, then pictures, words and pictures at the same time. Um, but the one thing that I really like, I'm just looking at a spread of a bunch of his thumbnails is even at the thumbnail stage, he's got these heavy, heavy areas of, of dark, solid areas of black. And I love that he really concentrates, even at this very early stage, on the solid areas of black and it's so overlooked the importance of solid black in comics because, you know, without it, sometimes I heard a cartoonist say that it looks kind of like unfinished coloring book art when everything just has a outline and no black shadows and no solid black, just to give it a bit of depth and shape and form and weight. But I just love that Dave Gibbons is thinking about his solid areas of black, even at this very rough stage.
0: Yeah. I I like, I like the plot uh, because it takes place uh, between multiple time periods, and to mm-hmm. like, I think that speaks to Doctor Manhattan as a character mm-hmm. because for him, time is it all. It's all happening at once, and free will is just an illusion, right? So it kind of mirrors that kind of uh, point of yes. view. Yeah,
1: yeah, and that's really interesting. You said that because I wanted to bring that up. The Doctor Manhattan, there's a there's one there's one issue that's devoted to Dr. Manhattan sort of, you know, recounting his origin. And he does say like, it's happening at the same time. I'm in this moment. I'm, I'm decades in the past. I'm in the future. I'm at all moments simultaneously, but it speaks to one thing that I've uh, heard Alan Moore talk about where he says, you know, yes, you know, you're supposed to read a comic in sequential order, but you're holding this book and there's nothing to stop you from flipping backwards. And, you know, especially with Watchmen where there's so many things that connect to something you would have read, you know, 3 pages ago, 3 issues ago, 3 chapters ago. So, you are kind of reading the comic and it does kind of exist as, you know, this one story but also simultaneously and there's nothing to stop you from jumping backwards and connecting panels to a page several pages back and a panel on there and that is kind of how Dr. Manhattan experiences time. And I think that's just really cool that Dr. Manhattan experiences time as a comic book almost and he is able to, you know, you know, Essentially, flip back a couple pages, flip back a couple chapters, and skip ahead. And I think that's just really cool that that is paralleled into the way that he experiences time.
0: That's really interesting because I never actually thought about that. Um, is this a part of the uh, the breakdown that you got from
1: your uh, Watchmen, watching the Watchmen book? Or I think I heard him talk about it before um, in another interview. And he, oh, Alan that. Moore, is a big, big component to you know the power of comics and he famously hates all of the adaptations and we'll talk about the adaptations maybe a little bit later but <laughs> one of the reasons he hates adaptations is because you lose something in that translation and that's one of the things he talks about that you lose is you lose this ability to kind of control your reading and mm-hmm. not even just that flipping back and forth but controlling the pacing of the reading which you know there's so many things you can try and do as a cartoonist to control how your reader gets information and you know, one of those choices is, you know, the the grid layout and how many panels per page, but really, there's nothing to stop you from Dr. Manhattan the book and jumping around.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I wanted to actually get into the, the characters themselves. And I when, yeah. when I was when I was reading them, um, I automatically did some comparisons yes uh between like dr manhattan more being like superman than like the uh owl being more like uh, like uh the classic batman the 60s batman with like the gadgets and all that stuff right yeah Um, uh for silk Silk specter at least it is uh, wonder woman-ish in my mind but at (laughs) the same time she hasn't really in this comic i this a I've read somewhere that Silk Spectre wasn't given that much uh, time to uh, develop as a character. And she basically doesn't want to be a superhero. So Mm that makes her more of like the uh, the point of entry maybe into this world uh, as like a normal person. So yeah, yeah, I I think there are a lot of cool dynamics in this comic that I'd like to get more into actually.
1: Yeah, well, let me just say that you know, one of the, the famous, you know, urban legends. I mean, it's been, it's been pretty much proven, but part of the genesis for this project was DC Comics acquired the rights to the Charlton Comics characters. So, I mean, the only one I really kind of knew of, or there's three that I've kind of seen because they've been, you know, properly incorporated into the DC universe. There's Blue Beetle, uh, The Question, and Captain Adam. So Alan Moore knew that they had these characters they had to bring into the DC universe. And he said, okay, I'll do a new story, and I'm going to kill one of them, and then there's going to be a conspiracy, and at the end, half of them are going to be dead, and the other half are going to be, you know, completely emotionally destroyed and shattered, and give up superheroing altogether. And DC was like, "Well, no, <laughs> if we just bought these characters. <laughs> if you destroy them emotionally or physically, then we can't use them again." So he's like, "Okay, fine. I'll just make up new characters." So. Night Owl is actually based on Blue Beetle, and there's actually, there were two Blue Beetles. So in this story, there was the original Night Owl, and then we have the secondary Night Owl, who's you know kind of a legacy character. Silk Spectre was based off a character called Nightshade, who I've never really seen much for. Uh, Ozymandias is based on Thunderbolt, who I'm not familiar with. Rorschach is based on The Question, who has been you know more integrated into the DC universe. The Comedian was actually based on uh, The Peacemaker, and then Dr. Manhattan was based on Captain Adam. But uh-huh. I see. I, I very much agree with you that, yeah, you know, yeah. Dr. Manhattan being the only super powered character in this world, it allowed, I think, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons to play around with a lot of superhero- Superman ideas. Like, what if Superman did exist? And their answer, really, which I find fascinating, is well, he just wouldn't care about humanity. He'd be so powerful and so removed. Yeah. That he's just, he's so detached and he just doesn't. And you know he has to find a reason to care and actually get involved in the story near the end.
0: Exactly, and uh, I <laughs> I found it funny that Doctor Manhattan is kind of uh, not very good at like human things, like even sex, right? Like yeah, uh, he <laughs> he's just so in his own world because yes. he exists in basically all of time. Like he for him, his per- perception is so skewed that like. For for him to start a relationship, he knows how it's going to end. Yes. So he's just like, why do I? Why should I even care? Right. Yeah. So no,
1: and it's interesting that like, yeah, why would he care about us? No, like you know, he's just on a different plane of existence. But uh, I think it's interesting. That you think the comedian connects to Batman for you because I saw Batman, and again, Batman is one of my favorite favorite characters of all time. Mm-hmm. But I see Batman kind of influences in Rorschach being this sort of very street level vigilante but he's kind of a very hard-lined very very black and white Batman who's already you know already accused of being a black and white character to begin with but he is very very you know my way or the highway Batman and then also Night Owl with like you said all the the toys and the the technology and the different gadgets and everything is based around his animal theme so he's got like his uh they call it the owl cave you know essentially the owl cave or the owl's nest i think it was called and then he's got his owl ship archimedes archimedes archimedes
0: Archimedes, yeah
1: yeah archie so but i mean i but i think that's part of the appeal of this is taking these archetypes and you know yeah okay what would the batman character be like in this universe really and what would a superman like character be in the real world really Exactly, so I think that's definitely intentional that they're pulling on these archetypes for us to connect to. Who, totally. Who is your favorite character?
0: Um, I think it is Night Owl and wow. uh, Silk Spectre too. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna explain. <laughs> I'm gonna explain. Um, it's because for me, that the two characters are the more relatable, normal people in mm-hmm. the book uh, compared to somebody like Rorschach. Rorschach is like. He is he he looks at uh, the world in black and white, and so his moral compass is very like um, I would say stringent or very constricted. The comedian uh, reminds me of the Punisher uh, yes. than any other character. Um, so, but yes, I, I would say that because of that human connection between Night Owl and Silk Spectre too where they're uh trying to have a relationship and Mm -hmm. you know he is just like a normal guy and he has like uh
1: i don't know he he has
0: issues with like even like intimacy and he's just like well, they
1: all that's the fascinating thing they all have their massive character flaws Mm -hmm, but i mean his is obviously the most relatable i think you know just he's a regular dude trying to stand shoulder to shoulder with these larger than life characters but yeah sorry
0: no no i i agree i and i think that's what makes him more human is that he questions himself mm-hmm. and that's why i find that that i identify with him more than any other character i feel like i was like rooting for for him and for lori you know just mm-hmm. to have like a normal life and it we can definitely talk about the ending later but that that's something that helped me uh, relate to the material and also kind of keep reading you know like i i we've spoken before about other books where I've I felt like, you know, I, I didn't really connect to the characters and I'm like, okay, I got to just kind of slog through it here. I did not <laughs> do that at all. I was like, Oh great. Like I, I want to see what happens to these people. Right. And yeah. um, And I'm rooting for them. I want them to do, you know, do well. So I think that's really important.
1: I, I think you're hundred percent correct that these are, you said it before, like our entryway characters, you know, a uh, night owl and it, I think it needs to be acknowledged that Night Owl is a big geek. He's a big nerdy fanboy who grew up seeing these superheroes in real life. And he was a big fan of the original Night Owl and said, Hey, I want to do that when I get older. And he is, you know, just playing dress up really. And he's one of the first, he's one of the ones who kind of takes retirement, you know, the easiest Rorschach doesn't retire. Comedian goes to work for the government. Dr. Manhattan can't retire because he's, basically a person of mass destruction that becomes, you know, the government's weapon. But Night Owl is he's a fanboy. He's, you know, the the main target audience of these books, so that makes sense that he is very much the entry point and the the gateway character. And Silk Spectre, you know, she inherited that name, she inherited this world of superheroes from her mother, and she never really wanted to be in it. So she was she very quickly was very easy to to quit when they were outlawed in the 70s. But you're right, like, you know, there is this huge overarching story of nuclear Armageddon is on the horizon, there's a conspiracy, but you know, we do connect with these two characters that are forming this relationship amidst this world of larger-than-life characters. I, I wanna say though, when I first read it, and I read this back in high school for the first time, and I've since read it so many times, there was a period where I was reading it at least once a year. But I, I honestly didn't see that relationship coming, because at the start of the book lori is dr manhattan's girlfriend they've been living together for years on a uh, u.s army base and then he leaves and abandons humanity abandons her and goes to mars and then she's kicked out of the base by the government because they only kept her around to keep dr manhattan placated she ends up staying with night owl and then it's a very sweet very tentative relationship that slowly kind of develops and really i think builds in a very realistic way and like you mentioned he's got so much self-doubt and he's just so (laughs) charmingly nervous around girls and then he's almost surprised when a relationship happens between the two of them and it really is the heart i think of the story which is interesting because like you said they she didn't have much to do because they didn't even add silk specter to the story until much later in the process and they're like oh my gosh we forgot to add a girl Exactly. I think she's underserved in this story, which is a disappointment because, you know, not to jump ahead too much to talk about the adaptations, but Laurie is by far one of the best and strongest and dynamic characters in the Watchmen TV show. And I, I think maybe part of that was a conscious sort of apology for how she was served in the original graphic novel.
0: Yeah. And uh, I wanted to also talk about the uh, Ozymandias and like his plot. You mentioned that, you know, certain characters were linked to the Charles charlton comic characters yeah. right but like do you know which character ozymandias was supposed to be
1: yes oh thunderbolt who is not someone that i am familiar with and question became a really cool character in the um dc animated universe with the justice league and justice league unlimited he was right. one of the characters that kind of emerged he's a really interesting character and you know captain adam was a big part of that show so i know those characters from mainstream DC comics, but Thunderbolt, I don't know that much about.
0: Hmm. I see. Yeah, I know for me, I, I just thought of like this actually a supervillain Brainiac, um, Mm. is more of a like, or, or maybe the hero Brainiac, you know, if, 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 if you try to bring in some, uh, Legion of Superheroes kind of vibe to it, you know, it's it's someone who's actually quite smart
1: He's focused to the point that it also he's also detached from humanity in a way similar to dr. Manhattan ozymandias Intellect removes Mm -hmm. him from humanity and he can't be part of humanity because he feels Detached and above us and needs to save us from our own selves. And so it's revealed Spoilers, hopefully you've read the book by now But it is revealed that he is the architect of this entire conspiracy, and he's but he's doing everything for what he thinks are noble reasons.
0: The fact that he sees himself as like a Christ-like figure. Yes. In the end, uh, I think uh, one of the panels, he his uh, arms are up and kind of in a Christ-like pose, Uh, and I found that was pretty interesting. And
1: yeah, is this the panel where he's celebrating? I did it! I did it! And his arms are up. Exactly.
0: I, okay, I'm trying to make sense of the fact that uh, most of the superheroes actually went along with this plan because in the end they were, uh, except for Rorschach, of course. And, you know, he, he because of his like moral black and white uh, hmm. point of view, he can't really deal with it like a great world, uh, uh, a world that is uh, kind of not perfect, right? So, I, I but I, I want to talk to you about why these ca- comic characters actually went along with the plan after they knew the truth
1: i think i felt that it was justified that and i think part of it goes back to what we just talked about with the characterization of night owl and silk specter they're very human characters they did not get into this i mean silk specter didn't get into this by choice and dan the night owl didn't get into this to perhaps save the world he just wanted to make a difference you know and you know try to do a little bit of good in the world and suddenly they're faced with this completely unwinnable situation This completely, you know, incalculable moral question of, do we speak out? And then maybe cause the, the ending is Ozymandias creates a squid like alien character and then teleports it into the middle of New York city. And there's a telepathic shockwave that kills like 3 million people in New York. And he does this all because he wants the us and the ussr to stop building up their nuclear arsenals and you know stop this march towards nuclear annihilation and you know nuclear winter and they want he wants this shit to to shock them into cooperation thinking that there's you know a threat from an alien planet another dimension and they put aside their differences and you know, it's almost immediate that they begin talks towards peace and reunification between the two and, an armistice. And this can only be maintained and only be sustained by keeping the secret and not revealing the conspiracy. So if Night Owl and Silk Spectre tell anyone when they return to civilization, and if they tell anyone, hey, the alien wasn't real, then it would have been all for nothing.
0: <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I was just trying to figure out why certain characters would actually just uh, Want to go along with it, even though there is a greater good coming out of it, right? Like mm-hmm. uh from a just a moral standpoint, and I think in in that instance, I kind of uh, saw what Rorschach was, you know, uh, going on about, and with with yeah. him and him setting up the fact that, like, you know, like sending a letter to a journalist uh, mm-hmm. at the end with uh, I- explaining the plan, you know, and uh, undoing the whole conspiracy. I found that very well, interesting.
1: Well, that's a more detail. Possibly, yeah. Rorschach doesn't know what the actual plan is when he sends off his final copy of his journal. So the book ends with there's this publication that has Rorschach's journal, and they're thinking about like let's t- maybe they're looking for something to publish in the next issue. But he doesn't actually know, you know, what's going on. He doesn't know that it wasn't going to be an alien. He doesn't know it was going to be, you know, this this fake alien attack at that point. So it would just reveal that there was some sort of conspiracy going on but not necessarily the entire plot because he didn't know the entire plot at the time of writing that journal so yeah. it wouldn't necessarily undo everything but it would cast things into doubt which plays into the the tv series i do right. want to say you never asked me my favorite character and it's, yeah uh <laughs> it's rorschach huh. and but it's, it's kind of for the same reason you talked about why night owl and silk specter are your favorite characters is because he is so different. And I find him fascinating that he does have such a different, you know, he's, he's not the entry character. He's this, I kind of do admire that he is so strong willed and he is so, you know, he, he buys into his beliefs so much and he is unwavering. I think that is, you know, somewhat sort of admirable, but he does take it a bit too far. But he is this very tragic hero and he, he, you know, I think it's more interesting because he is just so, you know, to be honest, he is a bit deranged, but I think that's interesting to watch him, you know, I don't necessarily enjoy the characters that I'm meant to relate to as much when I watch movies or read books, because, you know, Star Wars, your entry point character, the character you're supposed to feel like is Luke Skywalker, but my favorite character is Han Solo because he's the coolest and, you know, (laughs) I want to hang out with them, or I want, to be, I want to be him a bit more. I want to be the one who takes charge and, you know, mm-hmm. does what he means and means what he says. But I'm just looking at something from the Watching the Watchmen book. I don't know if you've seen this, the original character sketch of Rorschach. Have you seen this? No, I have not. It wasn't not. just his face that had the, the Rorschach patterns. It was his entire body. Oh, my God. Was so he, Gibbons like, in a onesie? Done, <laughs> yes, but Gibbons has done this... This illustration where he's got the trench coat on still and he's still got his Fedora hat, but he's ripping open his trench coat to reveal his Rorschachian onesie with all the patterns going across his chest and down <laughs> his legs. This sort of flasher Rorschach, it's that's phenomenal. too funny.
0: You know, but, I you, do you think that Rorschach kind of also reminds you of the Dark Knight Returns Batman?
1: yeah very much making these questionable moral choices mm-hmm. and taking things too far and being too obsessed and again fascinating you know yes to a certain point it is admirable to believe in your convictions but at a certain point too to exist in society and you know to carry on living you have to be able to decide when enough is enough. And that's Rorschach's fatal flaw. He is killed by Dr. Manhattan Mm -hmm. because he doesn't agree to go along with the conspiracy. And he says, no, never compromise, not even in the face of Armageddon. He's heading back to society to tell everyone, you know, this, this piece was, you know, paid for in blood and Dr. Manhattan disintegrates him. But one last thing I want to say about Rorschach, his mask. You've talked about how he doesn't see things in grays Mm -hmm. because his mask is this mix of black and white, but they never do mix. They never do turn into right. gray. It's very hardlined. And it's just such a brilliant visual representation of his entire ethos, his entire moral compass. And, mm-hmm.
0: uh, yeah, there are so, so many well layers done. to this book.
1: <laughs> yeah, man. That's, oh my gosh. There's so much to talk about. And I just love it so much. I want to talk about the structure a bit because we talked mm-hmm. about the characters, but I really like how there's 12 issues and it's more or less about half of the issues are kind of driving the plot forward. And then half the issues are kind of these character origin stories, more or less, or kind of deeper explorations of the characters. And does that structure remind you of anything that's been popular in pop culture in the last kind of 10 years? Mm. There's one thing that jumps out at me right away. What is that? Well, lost the TV show lost. Oh, I see every Mm. episode, you know, we'd focus on a character and, on the island and it would push the entire larger narrative forward. But then we'd also get all these flashbacks telling us a bit more about Kate or Locke or Jack. Mm-hmm. And, um, Damien Lindelof has come out and said, yeah, we just lifted that directly from Watchmen. And I just think it's so interesting that it's now come full circle that Lindelof has created Watchmen, the TV series, which, you yes. know, it takes this kind of structure from Watchmen the book, but he also already used it in Lo- in lost, but, I just think it's like I said, you know, there's so much world building and these issues are a really cool way into really getting into the deeper background, but also the deeper motivations of the characters. And again, Alan Moore in one of these interviews I've read with him has kind of admitted that he only really had enough plot for six issues. So when he had to fill 12 issues worth of material, he's like, well, let's just spend an issue. Every couple (laughs) of issues. We'll just look at a character's background. And for me, these are some of my favorite issues. The Rorschach issue is fascinating. The Dr. Manhattan issue is really interesting and it gives you a sense of how he experiences time. And each of these kind of character-based issues are, the style does change up. And I think that speaks to the power of releasing the story in chapters as issues over about a year. That, you know, it it still works together as a graphic novel, but it is interesting that these very hard-lined chapter breaks do kind of give them a chance to change the format up from month to month.
0: Yeah, totally. And I you know, I wanted to actually get to the point that, like, I, have you watched the the Watchmen TV show? And how do you think the characters were handled in that show? Plus, of course, we can talk about the movie um, mm. and uh, the the plot line there. Uh, but yeah, what, what do you think of... Uh, I, I've seen, like, parts of the, the TV show, which is kind of criminal.
1: So I... I watched it myself when it was first coming out. And then I just last night finished a rewatch of it and watched it with my wife, Emma, for the first time. She hadn't seen it. And I said, hey, I think you'll like it. But it's the interesting thing about the Watchmen TV show is it treats the graphic novel as canon. So everything that happens in the graphic novel happens and counts towards the TV show. So they're not contradicting anything, but it really just jumps into you know, let's check in on this world 35 years later, 34 years later in modern day or 2019. And if you haven't read the graphic novel, then, you know, catch up. And they don't do anything really to introduce new to new viewers into this world. And it's just sort of like, they assume, you know, what this world is all about. And if you don't, you got to figure it out. And so Emma said, when we finished it, she really enjoyed it. It was really well done. And she said, she thinks it'd be really hard to watch it without me. So especially the first couple episodes, I had to pause and be like, okay, so Ozymandias was this guy and, you know, just to catch her up and make sure she knew. And I was trying to explain, you know, exactly how much she needed without giving too much away. But I think it's, there's there's no excuse for how good it is. It should not be as good as it was. It's insane how well they did. You know, this, it makes no sense. Let's set it in the modern day. We're not going to give anyone, you know, any catch up, you know, it's up to you to do the homework, to read the graphic novel or not. And if you're on board, you're on board. And if you're not, we're leaving you behind in our dust. But it was just, it's fascinating. And the one thing I love about it, well, I love many things about it, but just like the graphic novel, it's, it's so layered. There's so many connections, deep history, larger world building, it has those kind of character based episodes, but also there's just so much going on in every frame. So just like how every panel has so much going on in, in the Watchman graphic novel, the TV show has so much going on in the background and you know, this little thing connects to this and this little thing will hint at this and this little thing connects back to the graphic novel. And so, yeah, I mean, well done. But one thing that even to make it even more, you know, to make it even less accessible, We've we've hinted at how the the movie changed the ending to the graphic novel a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. The TV nope. show goes back to the original ending. That's so if awesome. you're someone who's only watched the movie, you'll be confused. That's not that's it's not even good enough that you've seen the movie.
0: You're like, yeah, the squids are back. What? <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, so the ending of the movie, which I actually thought was a was a good choice. It it streamlined it a bit because there's this whole and I want to talk about this in a second too. But there's this whole subplot where there's artists and scientists going missing the whole time in the graphic novel and then it turns out that they're being recruited by Ozymandias to design his alien squid and then he teleports his alien squid into New York but in the movie he frames Dr. Manhattan and makes it seem like Dr. Manhattan has gone rogue and decided to go crazy and instead of blowing up people with a squid, the telepathic squid monster he launches a bomb that makes it look like dr manhattan which i think was a good choice it connects dr manhattan a bit more into the overall conspiracy it takes out some of the unnecessary subplots and i think it just streamlines it a bit so i did find that as a good choice in the movie
0: it was very controversial at the time when it came out i remember a lot of you know of people who are fans of the comic just mm-hmm. not liking that at all but i i, I understand why they did it because I, a, a large squid monster would have been maybe too much for like mainstream audiences to understand. Yeah. Yeah. So but
1: yeah. But that's the thing the the film is interesting because Zack Snyder directed it and he sticks so closely to the source material, you know, almost slavishly. And when he does kind of pull back and do his own thing a bit, that's when I think the movie comes to life the most. And so this this change in the ending, I thought, "Oh, that's interesting." He's kind of, you know, actually adapting it rather than just, you know, filming the graphic novel. And my favorite part, and I literally just watched this while I was waiting for you to get everything ready on your end, is the opening credits to the Watchmen movie where they set it to, it's this montage set to the times are changing by Bob Dylan. And it just shows the impact that the appearance of superheroes have had on history. So it shows all these famous moments, you know, the end of World War II, you know, the bombing of Hiroshima and, you know, hippies putting flowers in the gun barrels and protesting the Vietnam War and how the characters have influenced and changed history and changed reality and leading us to this alternate 1985. And that's the most fascinating part is when he really was showing me something different that I hadn't seen before and taking me deeper into this world. And then for the rest of the movie until the very, very end, it just sticks so closely to the graphic novel. And at the time when I first saw it, I was really, I really enjoyed it. But I do think that's when the movie comes alive the most is when he strays a bit from the source material. Interesting.
0: Yeah, okay. I I, I think when I was watching the movie, I, I thought he stuck to it so well. You know, I
1: mm-hmm.
0: Beyond the uh, the ending itself, I couldn't quite uh, think of anything else that wasn't in the comic, right? And it, no, it,
1: it's all taken right from that page, yeah.
0: Exactly. So I, I kind of appreciated that. Um, I think we also failed to talk about tales from the black freighter and how yes. that wasn't in the movie and how it kind of also connects everything together within the comic so it's a comic within a comic which is like also an awesome concept
1: <laughs> well i i just let me jump in with a bit of background because this is exactly what i was driving towards i want to talk about that structure of all these sort of ancillary storylines but in the world of watchmen superman was published as a comic and was sort of the inspiration for a lot of the early superheroes in the thirties. But once real superheroes came into existence, superhero comics fell out of popularity. And in our real world, you know, for a long stretch there, superhero comics were really the only comics you could find that were selling anything, you know, of any kind of notable numbers. But in this world, because superheroes were real, people didn't want to read about them as much. So other genres took off in popularity. And so in 1985, the most popular genre of comics is the pirate genre. Which I think is just a really cool, you know, look at how they would have disrupted the flow of media and the flow of history. So throughout the graphic novel Watchmen, there's a character who's reading this this uh, pirate comic series called Tales from the Black Freighter, and it does sort of parallel and comment on, and then they do these things where. Like captions from the graphic from the pirate comic are layered on top of panels in the main Watchman story, and you know it is intersecting with the the main storyline in really interesting ways.
0: Yeah, exactly, and it it's a uh, a a thread that kind of goes through this comic as well as you know the the uh, the main character of Tales of the Black Freighter definitely. Um, Is Ozymandias in my mind Um, Mm -hmm. and he becomes so marooned and um, uh, Just alone in the end as well just like Ozymandias. So
1: yeah, well the main character is Rushing back to his hometown because he knows that this ghost ship is coming to destroy everyone and he has to become more of a Monster than these monsters in order to save everyone he loves and so he he wins, but at what cost? And that's very much Ozymandias at the end. You know, he's saved humanity, but he's damned himself very much. Yeah, but for sure. I know, you know, we've said it several times. There's just so much in here. And one of the things I love about this, this book is the main storyline is interesting on its own. For a large period there, you know, on several rereads, I skipped over the Black Freighter stuff because... Yeah, I know that it does connect and does comment, but you don't need it to to get through the main story. And there's a lot of other stuff, some background characters, some, some, some subplots that I, I do kind of skip over sometimes. My most recent reread, I, I really slowed down and looked at everything and really, really, really absorbed everything. But there's some stuff that I do just kind of skip over if I'm just looking at this from a more entertainment point of view. Have you right, ever done right.
0: that? Yeah, I've i mean in my rereads i've done that where i've just kind of skipped over certain subplots and things like that um and i I can say also that i've after i read uh the book the first time and i read tales of the black freighter i've kind of actively skipped uh (laughs) tales of the black freighter (laughs) okay so it's not just me no no
1: what about the background material so every chapter which was originally published as an issue has like excerpts from, you know, novels or magazines, or, you know, Rorschach's chapter has his psych report. So there's all this sort of material that kind of builds towards builds up the world and gives us more background information. And the first couple chapters are the autobiography of the original night owl called under the hood. And what's your what's your take on these background materials? Do you always read those? Do you skip any of them? Um, actually,
0: again when i read it the first time i read everything but then as you know i i would skip over that stuff as you know i do more rereads of the book um just because uh it's they're very detailed and they give a great um background on how the superheroes have evolved uh since the 30s and you know Mm -hmm. i i even actually like those like um the the throwbacks and where, where they show uh the old team you know the old uh, yeah. superhero team from the, the 30s as well and how the the new superheroes have kind of taken up certain aspects of them or um how that how the old team affected the world it, itself yes. so it, it's for super interesting
1: um well yeah. i mean the two main characters that you've identified with the most silk specter night owl they you know are very much paying for the sins of their predecessors and i think this entire cast of characters we're focusing on in the 1980s are very much paying for the sins of their predecessors so in the 1930s and 40s the minutemen the original group of superheroes they changed the world forever you know in some cases for the good some cases for the bad and you know we're paying for the choices that they made and these superheroes this kind of second generation are reacting and maybe in some cases trying to undo what this first generation has done. And I think it's so interesting that the past very much affects the present. And again, going back to that sort of Dr. Manhattan way of seeing time and seeing the history is everything, you know, is related. Everything affects everything and everything bleeds into the past, the present, the future.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, Sorry, we we didn't saying? talk about the uh, the newsstand and how that also links up with everything too, right? What's happening at the newsstand? The characters I don't recall their names. <laughs>
1: so both the the newsstand man and the the young boys reading the pirate graphic or the pirate comic are both named Bernard, and that turns into a plot point. You know, they've been talking to each other and they've just been mm-hmm. you know sharing their views on the you know, the march towards nuclear Armageddon. And then it turns out that we're not so different. You and I, we both are named Bernard. What crazy. Here's my hat.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And uh, yeah, it doesn't, of course, end well for them either in the end. But
1: no, they are swallowed up in Ozymandias conspiracy plot.
0: Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, they're just interesting. There's some side characters that just help the plot along as well and
1: well it just it just fills in the world and mm -hmm. they've done so much to make this feel like a living breathing world and universe and that part of that is these side characters that are commenting on the main plot and commenting on the main characters totally so any closing thoughts from your end well one thing i want to talk about before we do wrap up is Mm -hmm. is the covers Mm. and the covers are unique for for several reasons and One of the things I think is really cool is there's no characters depicted on any of the 12 covers. And, you know, it's very common in especially superhero comics to have, you know, like the the hero, you know, big dramatic pose, maybe a very dramatic angle, low looking up at them, you know, very, very mythological, you know, deifying them. But every issue of Watchmen, it's either, it's usually a close-up of an object or, you know, something important to the plot. But also, did you notice that every cover is essentially the first panel of that first page. So starting with issue 1, we've got an extreme close up of the, the smiley face with that blood stain and that first panel mm-hmm. of that first issue is a little bit further away and then that whole first page is sort of the camera floating up further and further away, higher and higher and higher away from that smiley face. Oh interesting. The second the second issue, the cover is a, a close up of the of a statue over top of a grave with raindrops hitting it, making it look like it's crying. Again, that first panel is a little bit further away and we kind of zoom out a bit and go into the scene. The third issue starts on a close up of a fallout shelter with that sort of nuclear um, logo, the kind of three sort of triangular shapes, but there's a smoke steam coming from a vent that is in front of that. And I didn't notice this until reading, watching the Watchmen book. If you look at it, the shape of that smoke makes a skull so it's very much like the Jolly Roger because this is oh, introduced yeah. to that pirate right. comic book, and the smoke kind of goes over the word shelter, and it's cropped in a way that it only kind of shows the letters H E L for hell. Kind of this, you know, depiction of you know this sort of hint that bad things are on the way. But another noticeable thing about the the covers is the title. It goes along the side of the of the cover rather than along the top. And being a lifelong comic book fan, do you know why most comic book titles are along that top of the page or of the cover? It's
0: because it's the first thing you read?
1: It is the first thing you read, but also in most comic book stores, you know, comic books are displayed on racks or on uh, sort of bookshelves with the covers facing out, but in multiple rows. So you only really see the title sticking out before we move down to the next row and then the titles you're kind of all you can see until you get to that bottom row but Watchmen really wanted to change it up and kind of go against the grain so that's why the the Watchmen title is going along kind of the spine almost rather than along the top they wanted to stand out they wanted to grab your attention as something different and i just think it's cool that even from that cover even from before you even turn the uh, the page and go into that first page of the story you kind of know this is something different this isn't your typical superhero comic and I just think it's really cool as a way to prep you for hey get ready for something different here
0: totally and i wanted to kind of bring up the fact that uh the smiley face uh you know represents positivity of being a superhero and then the the blood stain is just a way of commenting on that yeah it's not actually perfect at all so
1: well not even it's i think it's even more than that that you know the smiley face is just the most basic representation you know an icon of humanity of, of cartoons of faces of comics the most basic you know if you boil it down to his basic essence you know you've got a face you know a very 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 iconic face and then we're bringing in the the realist the realisticness of that blood splatter but yeah not even just the fact the yellow is very important that it's this you know very bright superhero very bright yellow but yeah exactly. Just, you know, taking the basic language of comics and just making it bleed because we're gonna really, really pull it apart and build it back up again and breathe life into it. Yeah, one last thing I want to say about the covers, because I really hope if you haven't read it, this is hopefully convince you to check it out because it is a just wonderful graphic novel. But the, the version that I have and I actually bought, I bought it twice because I've read it so much my first version that I destroyed it and the spine pretty much gave out and I had to buy another copy. But the the version I have is that very striking all yellow with a super close up on the black eye from the smiley face with the blood splatter. And I like that because that's an even more extreme close up of the the first issues cover. So starting with that graphic novel cover, you know, that collection, I'm super close to that smiley face. I go through a few pages and I get to the first uh, proper cover where the smiley face is taking up about half the page. Then I go into the first page of the story and we're zooming out more and more and more. But this has been reprinted so many times that there's volumes that have, you know, characters on the cover or, you know, multiple characters on the cover. And they lose that extreme close-up of the, the all yellow with the one black eye and the, the red bloodstain. And I think it's a real shame because it does take away from that sort of feeling of, you know, you're already in the story by the time you look at the cover. So any closing thoughts on this one then? Closing thoughts? Ugh, man. It's just, there's so much, there's so much. And every time I read it, I discover something else, something new. My last reread, I noticed that the speech balloons change as you read the story. There's Rorschach, who's got this sort of gravelly voice. And for most of the story, his speech balloons are very, very rough and very kind of, you know, really kind of warbly. And most of the characters, they have these kind of very angular, very kind of rough, gruff, you know, very they're not very smooth speech balloons. But when you go back in time a little bit to the 1970s, you have the sort of more traditional, very smooth round oval shaped speech balloons. When you go back even further in time to the, the 40s, when we see the original Minutemen, they have a bit more like bubbly sort of multiple sort of ovals combining to make one speech balloon, which was kind of the style of the time. And when I first noticed that on my most recent reread, I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, they're telling us, through speech balloons, what, what timeline we're in. And I just thought it was such a cool, very geeky, very comic booky sort of, you know, very subtle way of telling you what timeline you're in. And I just love it. So I love that this book gives me, it just gives back so much. Every time I read it, I find something new. That's my, my closing thought on this wonderful graphic novel.
0: Yeah. And for me, Watchmen was kind of an eye opener because Mm -hmm. I, for me, I, I grew up on superhero comics and I obviously in the 90s, it was like, you know, they tried to deconstruct Superman. They killed Superman. Uh, they, you know, uh, broke Batman's back. Green Lantern went insane. All these like mm-hmm. plot points were happening at that time. Um, but when I read Watchmen, it was such a deep and... Uh, eye-opening as i I want to reuse my own wording here uh but like it was such a deep and eye-opening book to read and i i like it just changed my perspective on superhero comics and actually i'm gonna be completely honest with you the first time i read it i didn't like it and then i read it a few more times and i was like i get it you know and so um be- I didn't like it, I think, it, because it kind of fell out of that bubble of safety that, like, superhero comics have been to that point. You know, like, yeah. even it, whatever uh, you think about superhero comics at that time and how they were trying to be edgy and all that stuff, image comics, and all this stuff, like Spawn uh, was trying to be edgy with killing people and all that. But yes. even with that, I think it still fit into this bubble of kind of a the superhero identity and um just the kind of uh kind of cookie cutter superhero world and then watchman came in and it was complete deconstruction of that and i didn't like it at that time because of the deconstruction part i was just like so used to my regular like you know beginning mid- middle and end kind of story arcs like uh-huh. oh yeah superior is going to win in the end like it doesn't matter what he's going to come across right
1: and it's not an empty victory it's it's a proper victory
0: exactly and here it's a empty an empty victory and the superheroes have to compromise to go along with it so yeah i i i think that i give it credit for um just changing my perspective on graphic novels uh, overall
1: uh, but I mean, I think you and I are both kind of saying the same thing, that it rewards multiple readings. So for you, it took you a few readings before you kind of appreciated and kind of bought into it. And for me, it continues to reward on multiple rereads because there's just so much that you just notice every time. But I think talking about, you know, the the 90s, splashy, very dark dark and gritty, grimy superheroes, I think there's a lot of superhero comics that took the wrong message away from Watchmen and thought that what made Watchmen so popular and so enduring was that it was kind of dark and gritty a bit, but that, that's not what it is. It's, it's taking not just the medium of comics, but the genre of superheroes seriously. And I think that's, what's lacking in a lot of, you know, in your face sort of hard lined big events, sort of, you know, this one matters sort of superhero comics that, it's missing that sort of underlying really strong, really well-structured comic that, you know, is taking everything very seriously and not like serious, like it can't be funny or like, you know, very grim faced, but seriously as like, we're really thinking about what we're doing here. And we're really thinking about what impact we want to have on you as a reader. So Watchmen, I obviously recommend it and continue to recommend it to anyone who's interested or even curious about comics. Kale, would you recommend
0: this to a new reader? I would not recommend it to a completely new reader, but as somebody who who knows the comic form and feels comfortable with it, then I would definitely recommend it. I've had actually friends watch the TV show and then go back and read the comic just to kind of learn more about the characters. And I think that's amazing because then you're already introduced into that world and you have a rough understanding about, you know, what comics are and then to yeah learn more about the, the the characters and you know i don't want to spoil the tv show by any means but dr manhattan plays a major role in it and if you don't know who dr manhattan is you know it's probably a great idea to go back and read about who dr manhattan is
1: um, i i would be very interested to see you know does it i i would imagine that the graphic novel still holds a, a lot of surprises even if you're you know, looking at it as a prequel, I can imagine that it still does surprise you and still has a lot of twists that would be unexpected, even if you've seen the TV show. But that is Watchmen. Hopefully, if you haven't read it yet, this has gotten you excited about checking it out. It's available pretty much everywhere. You can get it uh, in print and digital. You know, if you're looking for it, please do consider supporting your local comic book store. This is a very challenging time for comics in general, but local comic book stores need our support, maybe now more than ever.
0: You can reach us at mattandkale.com or you can check us out uh, over social media or, and send us suggestions at Matt and Kale Comics on Facebook and Instagram. And on Twitter, we are Read. So that, again, on Twitter, it's Read.
1: Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thanks so much, you guys. And keep reading comics. And we'll talk to you very soon. Thanks so much, Kale. Thank you, sir.
0: Our next book will be Bram Stoker's Dracula, adapted by Roy Thomas, art by Mike Minola, the creator of Hellboy. It is a retelling of the classic movie from the 90s. So feel free to catch up and we'll see you in two weeks.